0: Thunder rolls across the sky in a deep groan as rain punishes the wind-whipped trees. Mud spatters with each drop along the sodden wooded path. Crawling forward, a cloaked man presses a muddy hand to his side and looks up as rain streams from the hood that covers all but a graying beard. He's close now, close to the light ahead. He need only press on. It seems like hours pass in that grueling crawl, but he's made the clearing and the stone stoop of a large structure. A mountainous wooden door remains closed against the storm. The sanctuary was completed and christened only months ago. And so much has transpired since. He hears noises from behind. Could those be approaching hooves? Surely they thought they had finished their work when they left him crumpled in the brush. Three of them had appeared from nothing, an impossible thing. But that is past. Now is the present. And he has a mission to complete. He breathes a heavy sigh as his hand touches cool stone. Just to the side of the door, the cornerstone. He presses his hand to it, and blessedly, the ring remains. Had they known what that could do? A blue-hued light and the stone opens like a compartment. With his remaining strength, he removes the ring with a thumb and drops it into the chamber. Then exhaustion and darkness sweep over him. The large meeting room with its heavy wooden table lay before her. Quiet as early morning light was only now beginning to illuminate objects within. Heavy curtains framed each of the six floor-to-ceiling windows on the right side. On the left, a massive inset bookcase, filled with dusty works of literature, policy, tax codes. This might be her only chance, but a mistake here could cost them everything. With no sound that she could detect, and time rapidly draining away, she softly and swiftly stole into the room heading toward the large object lying in the center of the table. As she reached the odd cylinder, she marveled at its smooth and rounded shape. A capsule meant to keep its contents safe over decades or more. It was open. A smattering of items within a miner's helmet, and clothing, odds and ends from the present time mementos that would be joined by a photo taken this very morning in the coming ceremony one last moment of hesitation. Then she withdrew the small pouch from the inner lining of her cloak, deftly opened a pocket on the miner's bib uniform within, then tucked and rebuttoned the pouch safely into the pocket. Her furtive eyes looked up, scanning the still empty room before moving smoothly and silently back. Scanning the still empty room before moving smoothly and silently back to the door from which she had arrived. Was this the right thing to do? Only time would tell. Applying the charred cork to his face and arms like camouflage, the aging miner knew this to be a last ditch effort to stave off the catastrophe that was coming to his hometown. Many of his fellow mollies had been rounded up, and many more of the town folk had been taken into custody under the same pretense. This was all out war, not the kind fought in the open with weapons, but a political battle that had waged as long as there was master and servant. Before long, he was outside, having walked this path his whole life. He let his legs carry him by memory, every stone Every route on the path, every rut was familiar, even in the darkness of this cloud-covered night. There wasn't a sound to be heard until he was almost to the edge of the path leading down to the mine opening. And then a slice of darkness opened in front of him. He had just enough time to pause and catch himself. Yet before he could register what was happening, something heavy shoved him from behind. The unexpected shock of it caused him to lurch forward tilt into the window of darkness and then he was tumbling clawing for breath his mind whirling his skin tingling his last thought of his failure just as unconsciousness embraced him the cloaked figure remained for a moment then lifted a hand palm open toward the undulating vortex closing the palm to a fist the darkness obeyed and folded out of existence a single silvery ring worn on the middle finger glimmered dully as the figure turned and melted back into the darkness of the surrounding tree line. What most people don't understand about coal mining is that often more than half of available coal is left in the large pillars that keep the roof from collapsing. A crafty and careful miner can remove much of this remaining coal in what is referred to as pillar robbing. The big mining companies generally aren't the ones doing this kind of work, especially since whatever is above the mine is likely to collapse with the roof. No, the pillars are left to specialists like Alonzo Sanchez. Sometimes referred to as bootleggers. But no matter what you call him, Alonzo was one of the best. This time, he'd been called over to take a look at something completely out of the ordinary. At the moment, Sanchez was trying to focus his headlamp down the shaft. But no matter what he did, he saw nothing but darkness. The men swore that two of their company had recently wandered down that shaft and disappeared. Likely, they were just trying to skip out on work. He was just about to take a step further into the shaft when an odd slurping noise startled him to a pause. Just as he was about to call for more lights, a figure walked out of the darkness and with the calmness of one on a casual stroll said,
1: Oi, Mr. Sanchez. We have an important task for you.
0: A wasp buzzed menacingly overhead, its tiny wings beating the stagnant air of a tiny shack that leaned in its dilapidated state on the edge of the meadow. A thick pad of dust covered the interior, which included a single chair and a small table that rested against the thin wall nearest the shack's sole window. As it stood, the window framed a view of the stretching meadow beyond, rising from which could be seen the haze of summer heat over the tall grasses. A loud crack broke the silent scene, followed rapidly by a rolling concussive wave that shook the little shack disturbing the many layers of dust which puffed into the air obscuring the space within. After a moment the dust began to settle around the shoulders of a darkly cloaked figure. He paused a moment to idly brush it away before taking hold of the latch, opening the door and striding off along the edge of the meadow. Then all returned to silence again this time a note deeper as the lazy buzz of the wasp was no longer heard. Often, the things of greatest consequence begin in the smallest moments. The large steam shovel roared to life, billowing white clouds into the crisp morning air. The lean man stood back, hands on hips, to admire his prized possession. he constructed this largely by himself from his own designs, though he had managed to get a glimpse of the patent filed by the Otis family. Ever since the death of William, almost immediately following the invention of his prototype, that family had held tight control over their designs. But the machine that stood before him was a marvel of modern design capable of doing the work of ten crews of men without tiring this machine he knew would revolutionize the virgin coal fields of Pennsylvania and beyond more important was the discovery he'd recently stumbled upon that of near limitless energy the thing had spooked him at first with its terrible destructive power but Gordon was a man of science. If something existed, there was an explanation for it. While it had taken months of planning, he had managed to trap the thing within the confines of the iron casing. All he needed now was to create a vacuum. Then, limitless energy. With a smile, he stepped to the center platform taking a seat on the lone center bench near the steering mechanism and gear controls. With a sputter and lurch, the great machine began its slow, noisy crawl across the meadow. Unaware of the figure hidden within the shadows just beyond the meadow's edge, Gordon Smith maneuvered his machine forward, dreams of wealth filling his daytime fantasies. The figure remained hidden until the machine that made its slow way across the meadow and beyond. This new development posed numerous questions and possibilities. After a moment's pause, the figure nodded as if having come to a decision, then stole swiftly after the vehicle and its driver. By the early 1800s, scientists such as John Dalton recognized that the atmosphere was in fact composed of several chemically distinct gases, which he was able to separate and determine the relative amounts of within the lower atmosphere. This discovery began to pave the way for a whole new understanding of underground mining, while advancing new scientific discoveries in gas detection. Unfortunately. This discovery also paved the way for what would become the hallmark of World War I, chemical warfare. By the early 1950s, two scientists working at Bell Laboratories gave the first demonstration that some semiconductor materials modify their resistance depending on the atmosphere with which they are in contact. Similar discoveries were made in relation to metal oxides such as zinc oxide, where its semiconducting properties were modified with a change in the partial pressure of oxygen or other gases in the surrounding atmosphere. These discoveries would significantly advance the safety of operating in and around areas susceptible to the sudden release of dangerous gases. It was for this reason that the lean figure of a woman stood at the lip of the landfill pit. She had brought with her an assembly of gas detection equipment for use in the swirling wisps of smoke now emanating from fissures in the north wall of the pit below. Unfortunately, her tests would prove that the gases seeping from the large hole in the pit wall and from the cracks in the north wall contained carbon monoxide, concentrations typical of coal mine fires. But that wasn't the only reason she was here. As her eyes finished a final sweep of the pit, they alighted upon a vacuum-sealed container, to which a tube had been affixed along with varying measuring instruments and dials. It was surprisingly small for its capabilities. This specific instrument could not only measure the specific amounts of gases present in a given radius, it could also make changes to the atmosphere. And yet, and yet, she thought to herself, We still use our canaries. Light crackles along jagged edges as the knot unwinds. A bell tolls its solemn tone, the resonance of the mind. A choice is made its end unclear, to displace or disembark. A note of ending and beginning in the distance, in the dark. Light crackles as the ageless knot becomes unbound.
1: Did you do any work there laddie? Wait at court isn't even close to being a fool.
0: The cruel eyes of the ticket boss, whose job it was to dock the $11 a month wages of laborers presenting coal carts containing too little coal or too much slater rock, caused the miner to shrink back in silence before sulking away.
2: Yeah,
1: go cry to your mom, then come back and do a man's day's labor.
0: The voice of Jack Langdon drifted off as the elderly miner trudged toward home bone-weary. He wouldn't be able to hide his injuries for much longer, but what was he to do? Let his family starve? The shadows in front of him shifted and then settled into the form of a cloaked figure, a woman, whose face remained hidden in the shadows of the hood.
1: I be seeing a man what could use a little hope?
0: He stopped mid-stride on the trail, looking at her more closely now. That cloak was very fine material, hands were gloved, and shined sturdy boots of such fine manufacturing that you couldn't see leather grain.
1: Why your attention now, have I? What if I could assure you that your family would be taken care of? Would you be willing to do something for me?
0: Seeing the ascent, and the old man's eyes. She took his elbow and led him deeper into the wood.
1: Come in, there is much to discuss.
0: The doors burst open and the room suddenly filled with smoke, scattering the men seated at the large table in the center of the room. Flashes and shouts filled the room along with a crash of furniture as men scattered to the far exit and some to confront the intruders. Edward Coyle had been seated at the foot of the table and therefore was nearest the exit door on the far side of the cabin. Now the shock of the front door bursting open and worn away, he was overcome with urgency to hide the small booklet with its journal entries. If the names on the journal were found, their entire enterprise would be compromised. His mind whirled as he sought his footing, he groped his way to the rear door. Something heavy sailed past his shoulder and the brief swirl created by the flying object through the smoke revealed the proper path and a few strides he had made the door and was pushing himself out into the night. What greeted him was more shocking than the initial invasion, causing him to draw up to a complete stop. Holding the small journal tightly in his left hand, his right lifted to shield his eyes from the blinding light that appeared in front of him.
3: Mr.
1: Coyle, I'm sorry but your time here has come to an end. We need you to come with us.
0: The speaker held out a palm-sized silver object, a small oval engraved with a familiar seal. His mind reeled at the sight of it. Seeming to notice his shock and confusion, the voice continued.
1: I assure you that this is very real, but I'm afraid that we're out of time.
0: He felt a sudden jolt across his shoulders, and then <sighs> darkness took him. As the sounds subsided in a small cabin and the bright lights winked out, The lone figure straightened from a crouched position. The events of this night were of grave concern. This amount of interference was both unexpected and unacceptable. It would need to be reported at once. As swift as a thought, the figure turned and strided more deeply into the night's shadows. Deep within the Aqua Mind, something stirred. First, a sound like the whirring of gears, then silence. And then, an explosion of power, of light and sound and extraordinary visions. It was as though the whole of human history was crashing into the whole of cosmic history, staggering, mind bending. Then, a clap like thunder. And silence once again.
1: all of these years we have done what we have sought to do I'd not be so exuberant by you doctor for me and the boys here yeah? we'll be taking over now nein this cannot be you do not understand this you do not know what you are doing I know so worried are you well then how about the train You work for us. And we don't make you disappear. Madame, this is important work. No, no. Get away from me. You cannot. I did not let you.
0: The sound of the explosion echoed across the West African landscape, wildlife taking flight. And again, the hooded figure watched from a secluded point, then turned and disappeared.
2: Experience against what? A handful of striking miners. This just isn't right, sir.
4: It is not ours to question, sergeant. It is ours to follow orders. And you have yours. Now, round them all up. All of them. Anyone that gives even a whisper of resistance, take them down, bring them in. We'll sort them out. Then God will sort them out.
2: Permission to speak freely.
4: It won't matter, Sergeant. Whatever you want to say, whatever you want to think, it's out of our hands now. There's been violence, a lot of it. We're here to put an end to that, so the regular folk can go on with their lives. This man, Goen. he's the new district attorney. Doesn't matter if he does own all the mines in the area. He's basically the law and the judge now. I like it no more than you, Sergeant. But we have our orders.
2: Sir. Yes, sir.
4: Off, sir, the men are moving out. We'll have this wrapped up swiftly.
3: I like the sound of that very much indeed.
4: I only pray that what we're doing here is the right thing.
0: Bon, West Africa. The Oklo Mine. Steam drifted up from crevices along the rocky exterior of the Oklo Mine. The mine had been operational for only a handful of years, but its secrets were about to be uncovered, which is why the trio of scientists were preparing to enter the mine to observe and report on the unusual activity within. This was a uranium mine, claimed and now mined by France, with a small minority stake shared with the state of Gabon. But this was no ordinary mine. Its energy output was unmistakable, the result of what this trio of scientists was here to confirm, a naturally occurring nuclear reactor. Though recently theorized to be possible, this was the first and only known natural nuclear reactor of its kind. One of the scientists Observing the trepidation of his companions drew the group to a pause outside the entrance, their radiation-reflecting suits stiff and alien against the West African landscape.
3: Do not be afraid.
1: No one will discover what was done here, and then we can return to the Centralia
3: project.
0: Nodding their assent, the strangely clothed trio walked into the mine and out of sight within the shadows of its primary opening. At a safe distance away shrouded within a dense stand of withered trees and shrubs a lone figure in a hooded cloak watched lifting a hand to observe an oddly shaped handheld device then a click and they too were gone
5: Audrey Lyndon, Memoir, March 3rd, 1874. For the past year living among the miners and their families in Centralia, Pennsylvania, I have learned very little about the supposed conspiracy I was hired to uncover. Perhaps more time is necessary, but I feel that I have gained the trust of the community and even found them to be hardworking and diligent. Agent McParland is convinced otherwise. His activities have become increasingly erratic, and I am beginning to suspect that he may in fact be orchestrating events rather than reporting on them. I am writing this information as a private memo rather than reporting to my superiors, as I am uncertain who to trust. March 28th, 1874. It appears to have begun. A mining supervisor was badly injured today. The talk is all over town that a new group has risen, called the Molly Maguires. Before this event, there was no word of such a group. It seems more than a little surprising that such a group would organize overnight. It is possible that they are outsiders brought into the community, but Few, if any, new families or individuals have moved into the area. In another note, there is discussion of strange activities taking place in the nearby woods. People have been seeing and hearing... things. And an odd object, some kind of metal device was discovered that cannot have been manufactured by any local craftsman. I have not been able to see it myself. Perhaps it is nothing. June 12, 1874. More violence, more injuries, as tensions between the Mine Barons and miners escalate. Some of the local men have now joined the activities of the Mollies, as they are called. What began as an external group has now recruited a core group of local men. I cannot penetrate their small circle, but MacParland is deeply engaged. I believe he may be leading the group, but have no evidence and no one to turn to. I continue to send my observations back to the Pinkerton headquarters in New York, but they seem disinterested in my activities. More agents have been sent to support McParlan's efforts, and I have discovered that the funding for this project has come from a man named Gowan. There are now more reports of people meeting strangers in and around the forest. I believe money and other strange objects are being exchanged for odd chores, like digging ditches in certain areas or collecting waste material from the mine scrap. Perhaps I should leave this inquiry alone, but I feel there is something important going on. July 1st, 1874. There are strangers in the woods. I saw one last week, cloaked in very odd clothing. I attempted to follow them, but their footprints literally disappeared. There was a strange smell in the air, like something metallic had been burning. I have begun to set small traps and telltales along the paths and am determined to discover more of this activity, which I believe is somehow tied to the rising violence and to this group calling themselves the Mollies. I fear for the families of this small town. Violence and hatred are descending like a hammer on an anvil, and the innocents are in grave danger. Arrangements have been made for my children. I fear that if anything were to happen to me, they may be at risk, so I have sent them back to New York. This is no longer a safe place for children. This is no longer a safe place for me, I fear, but I must remain to uncover this mystery.
3: let me repeat what you are suggesting to me. You say your people can infiltrate the Working Men's Benevolent Association in Schuylkill, near Centralia. You could also have me installed as the District Attorney. Your people can then identify the leaders of the labor movement there and can plant evidence against them. This seems too good to be true. As district attorney, I could bring them all to trial. Use the system to wipe them out all at the same time. It's a brilliant plan. The only catch I see is this. How do you set me up as the district attorney?
6: You leave that to me.
3: Well, that isn't good enough. I need to know how this is going to happen. You want to be paid? I want information.
6: You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Try me. Are you a man of science, Mr. Gowan?
3: I own all the mines in the territory. I know the business of mines and the science of mines. Don't tell me you have some way to turn all this coal into gold.
6: (laughs) Of course not. What I have is the ability to change people's memories. You will be the district attorney because we'll work up the correct papers and everyone will simply remember that you are the district attorney.
3: That sounds idiotic.
6: Does it? Tell me, what is my name?
3: Well, it's Pinkerton. Of course.
6: You wrote my name on your calendar when you set the appointment. Do you remember?
3: I'm not an idiot. Of course I remember.
6: Why don't you look at it now?
3: What is this? Is this some kind of... Is this some kind of hypnotism?
6: (laughs) Nothing so blunt as that. We're entering a new age, Mr. Gowan. An age where science will change everything. Now, let's just stick with the Pinkerton story. That will do very nicely.
3: So I'm to hire Pinkerton's Services then?
6: No, you are to hire me. And I will take care of the rest. Oh, one last thing. You have an unopened envelope on your desk, I believe.
3: What are these? I know this seal. How the devil... Who are you?
6: That, Mr. Gowan, doesn't matter. What matters now is what you do with the opportunity you have just been given.
3: (sighs) Oh. I also have one last thing. Yes? This fellow... Kehoe. Jack Kehoe. I have a bone to pick with him. Do you think you can... Work something special for him.
6: I'll see what I can do.
3: Then let's get to it. I've work to do. The Honorable Frank Gowan. I like the sound of that. Very much indeed.
7: John, this isn't right. This isn't fair. You've had nothing to do with this, with these mollies. It's a charade, and you know it.
8: They won't stop, Mary. They won't stop. How many more families, how many more children must suffer?
7: So it's us, then? We must suffer?
8: You're stronger than the others. We can do this. We can do this together.
7: But that's just it. We aren't doing this together. You're doing this. What about Mary Ann? Ellen? Ellen? Bridget, Margaret, what about Joey?
8: Joey will step up. You'll see. He's strong. You're all strong. And it can only be us. If I go to them. If I give myself up and take whatever label they decide to give me.
7: But how can they think this? How can so many of them believe this? You've had nothing to do with these attacks. You were here at home. I know. I know.
8: We both know. But they are convinced and they will not stop. You know that, Mary. They will not stop. Promise me. Promise me this. All of the children. You'll look after all of them. After I'm gone, there will be 43 and no fathers. I can't. You must. You must, Mary, or all is lost.
9: Order, order, order in the court. Mr. Kercher, the state may call its first witness.
10: I call to the stand, Mr. James Kerrigan.
9: Will the witness please stand to be sworn in by the bailiff?
10: Please raise your right hand.
0: Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?
11: Oh, yes, yes, sir, I do.
9: And I do will suffice, Mr. Kerrigan. Mr. Carter, you may proceed with your witness.
10: Thank you, Your Honor. Will you please share your name with the court? My name is Jimmy, er, uh, uh, James Kerrigan, sir. What is your occupation?
11: I am a coal miner and explosives expert.
10: And are you known by any of the names? Uh, yes, sir. Uh,
11: some people call me a uh, powder keg.
10: And can you tell the jury why you were called powder keg, Mr. Kerrigan?
11: Sure, Your Honor. I like to blow things up. I'm quite good at it, really.
10: And how long have you been using explosives?
11: I'd say about 20 years, give or take.
10: And what kind of things have you blown up?
11: Well, mines mostly. Um, I work the mines and blow new shafts.
10: Have you ever been in the town of Centralia in Schuylkill County?
11: Um, yes, I live just outside the town.
10: And when did you first come to Centralia?
11: 1873, in um, October, I believe.
10: When did you first get acquainted with Mr. Mike Doyle?
11: I first met Mr. Doyle in the early part of spring 1875.
10: You have told us you were a mining explosives expert. Will you tell us for what purpose you came to Central Area?
9: That we object to.
10: Now what's your objection?
9: As irrelevant and immaterial.
10: We have the right to prove the object of his visit, whether he came here as a resident or a visitor, or for the purpose of executing a particular course of action.
9: I find the question material as tending to show Mr. Kerrigan's expertise. Objection overruled. Mr. Kerrigan, you may
11: answer the question. For the purpose of joining the Molly Maguires in disrupting the mining operations in and around Centralia.
10: Can you state whether in coming to this county you joined an organization known as the Molly Maguires?
9: Now make an offer embodying your whole proposition.
10: The Commonwealth propose to provide by the witness, James Kerrigan, that as an explosives expert, He became a member of an organization known as the molly maguires of which the defendant was a member and that together with mr doyle and as a member of that organization and in agreement or confederation they acted together in the attack on mr william m thomas and his home we further propose to prove by the witness the rules purpose and character of the organization and all the circumstances connected with the conspiracy to harm Mr. Thomas, and that the attack was made in pursuance of the rules, regulations, and orders of the association known as the Molly Maguires. This is to be followed by proof of the attack itself.
4: Order!
9: Order, I will have order in this court. If we cannot be civil in this matter, I will remove all but the counsel and jury. We object to the offer as irrelevant and immaterial. If there was a conspiracy, as stated in the offer, it is one of fact capable of being proved and it does not depend upon the question whether Mr. Doyle was a member or not. Overruled. The court will admit the offer, though your objection is noted. Please, prosecution continue.
10: Thank you, Your Honor.
11: I was working for Mike Doyle, who... Instructed me to do so on behalf of the Mollies.
10: And what is your understanding of your mission as a member of the Molly Maguire's?
11: See, the public notion is that it's to protect the workingmen. But really they're all of the most hardened villains. I regret what I did on their behalf, but I assure you that I was just following the rules.
10: And whose rules were you following?
11: I was following the order of Mike Doyle and the rules of the Molly Maguires.
2: Here, while I unlock the door. I can only spare you a few moments. I'm sorry.
7: John. Oh, John. You look... You look so tired.
8: Mary, it's so good to see your face. How are the children?
7: Of course. Of course you wouldn't have a care for yourself. That's why I love you. You know that,
3: John.
8: Yes, Mary, and I you. So, so how was the trial?
7: It, it was bad, John. Very bad. Jimmy, Jimmy turned on Mike. He turned on all of us. I thought.
8: We all thought it, Mary Ann. We all thought he was one of us. McParland too. Who knows how many there were. All of them stirring up trouble to blame on us.
7: It's worse.
8: It's okay, Mary. You don't have to tell me anything more.
7: The Baron, Frank Goen, he's... he's appointed himself as the special prosecutor.
8: What? How is that possible?
7: No one knows. He just became the district attorney. It's also strange, John. It's so unbelievable.
8: There's no hope, then. So let's not think about that. Someone. Someone visited me.
7: One of the other men? I think they've all been arrested now.
8: No. Somehow I knew them. I knew her. Lyndon. Audrey Lyndon. She's been living in town.
7: Yes, yes. I know her, but why would she come here?
8: She said she is a Pinkerton. Undercover.
7: Then she's one of them! I'll find her, John. She can pay for this even though they cannot be touched.
8: No, Mary. No. A real Pinkerton. She said it was all a setup from the beginning.
7: Then there's nothing to be done?
8: No. She said she could help us. She could help the children. He told me that the children were all in danger. All forty-three.
7: John.
2: Milady, it's time. I love you. Bring up the recent statistics on the new Arklobe project.
10: You should be seeing them now.
2: Yes. Nothing looks out of place, but something is not right.
4: I've been running the CBR protocol in tandem, and everything is within expected parameters. But these are biologic.
2: We will achieve the fourth harmonic soon. I want no peripheral impedance. None.
4: Then I suggest a physical inspection of the farm, as all sensory input will reveal nothing further.
2: You're right, of course. There's just too much possibility for variation. I think I had better handle this, personally.
4: As you wish. Is there anything else?
2: Continue your work on the adversarial network. I'll be gone for a few days, perhaps offline.
4: As you wish.
0: For heaven's sake, there's nothing there. We've been over this again and again. Then try again. Something's there. I can feel it. <sighs> there. See? Nothing. Look! We have to move on. Try another vector. Try something. We can't sit here doing this over and over again.
2: Go on without me. I'm not
0: leaving it. There has to be something more. Something we've been missing. The longer you stay, the more dangerous this being becomes. She already suspects you as it is. She's just a suspicious person by nature. Quit worrying about it. Go on. I've got this, really. Then get out soon. Class, please take your seats and turn to page 152.
1: I'm um, Professor?
0: Yes, Charles.
1: So we be- so before we begin, I-, I-, I thought perhaps I could ask a question that we've been talking about outside of class.
2: Very well.
1: So, Plato's theory of forms asserts that the physical world is not really the real world. Instead, ultimate reality exists beyond our physical world in what he describes as the realm of forms.
0: And?
1: Well, back in the 1990s, there was a theoretical physicist, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who proposed the concept of morphic resonance as a process whereby self-organizing systems inherit a memory from previous similar systems.
0: Your point, Charles?
1: Well, 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 is it possible that the realm of forms, morphic resonance, they're all the same thing, a sort of a quantum reality, and, and if so... Would it be possible to observe this realm of forms? Perhaps go there?
0: Let me ask you a question, Charles. If this realm, as you call it, existed, and you could go there, as you so naively suggest that it might be that simple, what sort of consequence might that have on our world?
1: Well, I... Will I suppose you... You changed the, the... The fabric of... Of reality?
0: Tell me, Charles, of the two, which is the greater threat to humanity? The physical or the existential... A black hole consuming our world, or a rift consuming all memory.
1: Well, I. I.
0: I would assume that the, the, the physical.
1: Actually, Professor, physical threats can be avoided or countermeasured. But how would you stop something that threatened to destroy all of memory? All the forms that shape our very existence? It would be. it would be chaos.
0: Indeed it would be chaos.
2: There's an overload on Sector 17927. A breach of some kind. This is not possible. Check that again. You're looking at the same readings I am. This shouldn't be possible. You're right. Something is wrong. So one of the observers just reported an anomaly in tank 24, same section. There, there, there is an unaccounted fluctuation in the residence. I've never seen anything like it. Get here. She needs
1: to know.
0: Well, this is troubling
1: what what shall we do
0: the possibility was always there but how they could do this from inside the resonance is unknown how how could this have happened we have contingencies in place if he arrives i will meet him myself What do you mean, arrive? Eric is coming and everything is about to change if we don't act quickly. I'll alert the strike team. In 1833, a new technology for smelting iron with anthracite coal created a boom in coal production in Pennsylvania, in and around the small town of Centralia, PA. As with many scientific discoveries that are meant to make life better, this new technology allowed organizations to generate massive revenue at a time when the country was barreling headlong into civil war. An influx of migrants led to many abuses and With weak to non-existent labor laws, the anthracite coal barons preyed upon the many Irish that were fleeing their home country in response to the potato famine in 1847-48. As the Civil War escalated in 1862, local drafts of working men were enacted, but heavily resisted by the mine workers who felt they had no stake in the mounting war. This opened the door for the creation of private policing forces by the mining barons the most prominent of whom in this part of the state was Franklin B. Gowen, who was the president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railway and the Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron Company. Documents from the time describe Frank Goen as the wealthiest anthracite coal mine owner in the world. Escalating violence and clashes between the workers and mine owners continued until the workers formed one of the first unions in the region called the Working Men's Benevolent Association whose purpose was to create a unified voice in organizing the workers to push back against the perilous working conditions in the mines and treatment of the miners and their families. Doing so, however, had quite the opposite effect. Before long, the union had grown powerful, with 85% of Pennsylvania's anthracite miners joining, numbering nearly 30,000 working men. In response, Goen forged his own alliance rallying all of the mine operators in the region to form the Anthracite Board of Trade. In addition to the railroad, Goen owned two-thirds of the coal mines in southeastern Pennsylvania. He was a risk-taker and an ambitious man. Goen decided to force a strike and a showdown. It was at this point that Goen hired the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency, who would use its success in this operation to become the single most effective anti-union organization in the country. By the 1930s, the Pinkerton Agency employed 1,200 labor spies, and nearly one-third of them held high-level positions in the targeted unions. With Pinkerton agents in place go forced a strike of 10,000 miners by reducing wages by 10 and even 20 percent in certain areas. The scope of the strike forced the hand of then-Governor John Hartram to order 1,800 members of the state militia to the coal region to help put an end to what was called the Long Strike. With the militia at his command, Goen used his influence to arrest many of the miners he believed to have the greatest influence according to his spies, and set himself up as the district attorney and special prosecutor in their trials. A jury of non-English speaking German immigrants was found and bullied into returning guilty verdicts that resulted in what is known as the Day of the Rope or Black Thursday, where ten of the miners were hanged. So many of the mining leaders were hanged in this time period, they left 43 children without fathers. Jack Keogh was indicted and hanged as the King of the Mollies, largely on the 210-page false testimony of a spy placed in their midst. His name was Jimmy Powderkeg Kerrigan. In 1979, Pennsylvania Governor Milton Schaap granted a posthumous pardon to John Black Jack Keogh after an investigation by the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. The Board recommended the pardon after investigating Keogh's trial and the circumstances surrounding it. Governor Schaap praised Keogh, saying the men called Molly Maguires were martyrs to labor, and heroes in the struggle to establish a union and fair treatment for workers. And it is impossible for us to imagine the plight of the 19th century miners in Pennsylvania's anthracite region and that it was Keogh's popularity among the miners that led Goen to fear, despise, and, ultimately, destroy him. One hundred years from the start of the terror and violence against the miners in the Centralia region on Memorial Day 1962, it was discovered that a mine fire had been set in the mines below Centralia. The circumstances surrounding this mine fire have never fully been uncovered. Yet that fire continues to burn to this day, and Centralia is literally a ghost town. While we have fictionalized the stories and experiences of Eric Wolfgang, Joey Keo, and many of our other characters, our story about Centralia is based on real-world events, for truth is often much stranger than fiction. As we move further away from the past, our knowledge of the events that actually took place fade. truth becomes a mere resonance of what once was. The heroes of our youth at times become the pariahs of the present. But either way, our memories of the past have a way of shaping the present and the future. We hope that you've enjoyed our story and encourage you to investigate the many mysteries we have tried to uncover for yourself. But we caution you, be careful how deep you dig, for you never know what secret you may uncover.
6: You are the final two to arrive. I won't be gone long, and Etnani needs your help. Promise me you'll be helpful. Hello? Is anyone there? (laughs) Screechers?
3: The family reputation is at stake, son!
6: The visual arts may lack relevance- Wait, what is that?
11: Governor's School for the Arts at Walnut Grove.
0: The Happy-Go-Lucky Podcast, producers of Charlie Saves Christmas, bring you our next heartwarming adventure, Cassie and the Spectral Shade.
5: Don't you remember what it was like to be 17?
11: It turns out you're quite pretty, and it wouldn't hurt for people to see me walking in with
2: you. Good for you, Judy. Cut. Cut? That was ghastly. Dreadful. I want you to go through it again. This time make me feel something.
6: You think that if I could dream the same thing over and over, that eventually I'd figure out how to control it better than this.
10: Seething every moment, keeping them
5: like time to away with- Sorry about that, but you'll find that Walgrove has a thing for dreadful terms.
6: Fair and warm, lone traveler. Come, rest that I your wounds may bind. If my reputation is based on the company I keep, I suppose I'm better off heading in on my own.
0: Please join your fellow first years in the Great Hall, where the staff and faculty have prepared a lovely reception for you.
6: you can call me Cassie. Cassie Cole. Sorry I didn't mention it earlier."